a staggering amount of American workplaces, everything from McDonald's to Fortune 500 companies where people in white collar jobs are being tracked, uh, you know, with more intrusive technologies than ever before. And it's interesting seeing that this has been historically very common in low paying jobs. And now that it's climbing up the, the chain with remote work, now we're kind of all morally outraged about right. it. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I think the zeitgeist is continuing to grapple with your appearance on Bill Maher. Tell me a little bit about the past 24 hours here. It didn't end up being as disastrous as I expected it to be, but um, essentially what happened on Twitter is it started with this clip that Fire, the free speech org that I work for, posted of me talking to Piers Morgan. Again, I'm a member of a generation that never really was taught the principles of free speech and what it means to be a classical liberal and who John Stuart Mill is and and why that's such a, a, a precious thing to our society. And, you know, growing up and, and going to a school like NYU and seeing that on the back of my ID card, we have here's the, the emergency hotline and here's who to call if you're sick. And then here's the bias report hotline if you're offended. The and what? The bias report hotline. In bias case you're offended, report? there's a phone number on the back of Wait, your ID really card. Called that? It's called the bias report hotline. Yes. And bias that's report. On the back of our ID. At which. In, at NYU. It's a back, hotline. It's a hotline in case you're offended and your feelings are poked and prodded. And unfortunately, who, who answers the phone when you? I have never called it. When no, I but was who there, does answer the I'm phone? Someone at the university. It's on the it's on the university card. And so then it's, they do what? Um, you know, investigate why you're offended and if something needs to happen. So I'm fascinated I, by this. I, I know, really right? It's, it's, it's nuts, hard isn't it? to it's nuts. That tweet just kind of fizzled, and you know, like. Bill retweeted it, and then all of a sudden, um, I think Ann Coulter first retweeted it and said, Lovely. everyone should start calling this line. And I'm like, no, they shouldn't. And like, right. I, I had shared, a lot of people had accused me of lying about the back of the ID card, which I shared oh, a really? picture I of, it. That part of it. I yeah. shared a picture of it, and I like covered up the Another, hotline because yeah. I just knew this was going to happen, and I'm, I'm not here to dox my old school. Um, right. And then Ted Cruz jumped on it, too, and quote tweeted it twice and also said everyone should call this number, which they should not. For the record, I do, I do not endorse it, but yeah, I panicked a little bit for a oh while. God. I'm like, I don't really want my school to be flooded with calls. So are people personally attacking you now because of this? Like NYU students saying no, that you're making them unsafe no. or anything like that? I think we're... We're in the, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to invite anything, but, um, wow. you know, I mean, I've gotten a lot of pushback on Twitter naturally, but that's just what happens when you go on something like this. But I haven't heard from a lot of NYU students. I think people have been, I would say there's a more positive than negative, but there's, there's a lot of negative in the, in the ether. Wow. Well, yeah. So exciting. So exciting <laughs> to be in the middle of it all. Uh -huh. Well, Ricky, on today's show, we're going to talk about the rise of these things called worker productivity scores and what that means for companies and their employees. We're going to talk about Liz Cheney and her results from Tuesday. She's soon to be out of a job in Congress. Then we've got a bunch of new data about how students have been doing over the past few decades. And there's some startling revelations in some of that data. And of course, it's Thursday, so I'm going to share a radical idea. But let's start with this news that Andreessen Horowitz announced its single biggest investment ever in a new venture from Adam Newman, the disgraced founder of WeWork. We saw a lot of different reactions to this, confusion, eye rolls, sticker shock, moral outrage, and there are a lot of hot takes flying around. Ricky, why don't we start by just explaining what this company is? I think it's called Flow. Uh, what what can we gather about their mission and their business model? Basically nothing. It's just <laughs> um, kind of picking up clues from a post that uh, Mark Andreessen shared about why he is investing and also just a very bare bones website, which only says that it will launch in 2023. And their slogan is live life and flow, which sounds mm. suitably utopian for new men. Um, but there's no explicit plans. But essentially, this is a real estate firm of some sort that is going to revolutionize supposedly how renters interact in, in the housing market and how they may or may not be able to build equity um, in this new model. It's unclear if it's a rent to own model, but that seems like... Yeah, they seem to suggest that. Right? Yeah, it seems suggestive of that for sure. And the New York Times, they, they say it's effectively a service that landlords can team up with for their properties, somewhat similar to the way that an owner of a hotel might contract with a branded hotel chain to operate the property. But... 
There was an associated entity that applied for a trademark and had to say what their business does. And they involve cryptocurrency, online social networking, um, real estate development, and temporary accommodation. So those are some clues. And this is also owned by Adam Newman? This is an associated entity, yeah, that he's, he's involved with. He also recently has bought 4,000 apartments, a, a, a value of $1 billion in Nashville, Miami, Atlanta, Fort Lauderdale. And he acquired a stake in a concierge company. So it seems like... Kind of like the WeWork off branch that he created, We Live, which was a very short lived co living situation. It was a lot of like common amenities and and household things, but um, right. you know it's kind of it's hard to get a sense of this. But an insider says that it's essentially going to be like an apartment brand with amenities. Right. Um, and then and Andreessen suggests that this is going to revolutionize the way that renting and owning is kind of exclusionary to a lot of especially young people. Yeah, I, I think like the when we think about Adam Newman, right, we all we don't have to rehash his his series of scandals or TV shows, podcasts and all that, um, books written about it now. I think when you get to trying to look through the tea leaves and say, what is he at here? And mm -hmm. based on the the Andreessen post, which yeah. we'll link to, which I think is really good. At, you know, we gave Andreessen a really hard time on Tuesday. But he's a great writer and a great thinker, and he dissects the housing market pretty clearly, and he goes through the trends that we're creating households faster than we're building houses, how young people are staying single longer mm -hmm. and, and you know, being attracted to you know, very highly coveted urban centers, and this is all putting pressure on rents. And so he says that right now we have two different models. He says, and this is the Andreessen says, you can buy a house, you can get a multi-decade mortgage, but you're kind of stuck where you are. And obviously it's really hard to buy a house. You can rent. And he says, it's, you know, there are all sorts of problems with renting. You're, it's kind of soulless. You don't get to know your neighbors. I think he oversells that part. But the part that he's absolutely right about is you don't build equity over time. And that causes problems for you, especially as housing costs and renting, you know, rental costs are actually in some places like New York outpacing even uh, the cost of buying. So he says, is there a third model? That's essentially what he's positing. And I think if you know anything about Newman, his seminal experience is growing up on a kibbutz, which if people don't know what a kibbutz is, is communal living. And this infused a little bit about the way that he saw WeWork, which is kind of a more communal office space. They did We Live, which was a struggling co-living situation. It's basically like an adult dorm. We, and we can make fun of that, but at the same time, we've all lived in terrible apartments in New York City yeah. at various points. And, and there are pictures of people in San Francisco paying thousands of dollars for essentially like a cot. Mm -hmm. And so he has this sense of communal living, working, people sharing resources more, no matter what we think about him and, and how dishonest he's been and deceptive in his business practices, we can get a sense of where this business is going. And I think what makes this different than a lot of other investments Andreessen Horowitz may have made is that it's asset backed, right? Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons potentially why they're putting so much money into this is not only that they believe that this is a problem we're solving, but that in the end, I'm sure they've locked up the underlying assets to say like yeah. if Adam Newman pulls his Adam Newman business again, at least they'll own something at the end of it. I'm I'm always a little bit off put by the sharing economy sort of stuff because I feel like it's you don't want to share. It's it's like the worst case scenario where you don't really own anything. You're, I forget and this. You're, you're kind like an of only like, child who has like a million <laughs> no, siblings. It's, it's true. Yeah. yeah, half siblings, so they don't really count. They're like older than my right. mom. So, but. I'm always a little weirded out by the idea that like you don't really own anything. You're kind of just um, like I, I think it's it's a sign that our economy is not healthy. You get to that own that's stock like, in an Adam Newman company. Yeah, except what, that what like else you don't more put roots that? down. I don't know. Like yeah. I don't know some of the like kind of purpose of life sort of things of like like owning property. I don't know. It feels like a very old American thing. Like owning something, it's yours. I think it's, everybody will take know, it. Something to strive to. And, I, I, and I'm not saying that this is not actually a solution to a right. very realistic problem that's happening. And I understand why people are gravitating towards that or Uber or all these kind of different examples. But I think it's a symptom of like, it's a fix to a kind of underlying sad reality of our economy right now. Well, I think part of what he's saying is Maybe owning your house outright is the best scenario, but he wants to create a middle ground between. Cause yeah, like, no, definitely I agree. Renting, renting in general sucks. is bad. Yeah, right? totally. It can be bad. There are certain people, you know, actually really smart financial experts who make the case that renting is better than owning in certain cases. I think those people have been largely disproven in a market where housing prices have skyrocketed the way that they, they have. I think if you have the ability to, to own 
almost everybody would get in that time machine and go 10 years ago and buy if they could. That being said, there are a lot of people who have a lot to say about this. There are many contours of the criticisms of this deal. One is Adam Newman's record as a businessman. He had a lot of problems in how he scaled yeah. WeWork. And, and its value went from like $47 billion to four right yeah. now. So. And, you know, there's a great TV show about it and all that. I'll just stop and say that I have personal experience with this. I've been a WeWork customer, but also my best friend runs one of their biggest competitors, this company called Industrious. And as all of this stuff was playing out, my friend was in negotiations with Adam Newman. And so he would have, he would come back and we were sharing an apartment at the time. He would come back and be like, all right, I had to go to a meeting with Adam Newman. And he tells the story of how he once uh, had a meeting with Newman and they insisted that he meet Adam Newman on a tarmac out in the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. And in the, he gets on a private jet with Adam Newman. Adam Newman is basically trying to intimidate him to sell his company. And in the process of trying to intimidate him, Adam Newman goes, you know, like I've bought the waves or something like that. And, and my buddy's like, what are you talking about waves? He thought, he thought Adam Newman was saying like, I'm making waves with my company. Turns out Adam Newman had bought a wave company, like an actual like artificial wave company. And he, Adam Newman started to just go over, he bought a wave company. He's like bought like uh, childcare services. And he was going yeah. through all these, like a gym, he was opening up a gym service and he had all this mission creep going on. Uh, and my buddy came back and he was like, I'm not that concerned about this guy <laughs> as yeah. a competitor. He's not very focused. Yeah, he was like trying to start schools as well. Yeah, and we, yeah, we yeah. grow. I have a friend who was involved in that. My concern, if I were Andreessen, is some of the things you were talking about, like registering this trademark, they're doing that. I think his lack of focus is already starting to show. Yeah. And it's it's one thing, it's also your attention management, but it's also, uh, there was some impropriety here. Like Newman, when he was uh, operating WeWork, had all these weird shady deals where he was licensing the We name yeah. to the company. He was buying buildings and then having WeWork rent from buildings he owned. And he had all these conflicts of interest going on, both in terms of how he was spending his time and how the company was spending its money. If I were Andreessen, I'm sure he's smarter than I am on business deals. I, I would hope that they have certain ironclad stipulations. Yeah, well, about he's also Adam's on the board and that was part of the deal. I think that's probably pretty significant. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if he has like a very influential role that he's carved out for himself. You, I would hope he also has roles in some of these other things that are happening in and around this space because that, yeah. that was part of the deal there. But let's look to some of these other criticisms. One that I think really has legs is just the how difficult it is for female founders versus male founders in the VC world. Let's go to a clip of Allison Byers talking about this issue and these challenges. People of color are asked, why, why the outrage? Why do you have this emotion? Uh, well, it's because only 2% of VC dollars go to women, 2% go to Latinx founders, 0.67% go to black founders, and there are less than 100 black women total who have raised more than a million in VC funding. It is expected. It is not a surprise. We are used to it. But you you have to feel that rage when you are part of that community that is just historically blocked from accessing this funding. So the number she cites, just to underline it, is companies founded solely by women secured just 2% of venture capital in the US in the last year. What do we make of that number? That seems staggering. I mean, I would be interested in hearing what percentage of like pitches are successful within each group? Because I think that especially with just the reality of women and how they interact in the economy, of course, there's historical aspects going on here. And the fact that women have not been in business for very long, but I'd be compelled to hear like this, like this is a disparate like acceptance rate, or I don't really know mm -hmm. what the like or investment rate in people who are pitching themselves. I think that would be a really compelling data point. I mean, this is obviously it. There's historical elements that I don't think venture capitalists can necessarily fix just depending on who comes through their door. But if the statistics show that people are coming through their door and it's very disparate, then that's a totally different conversation. Well, I think part of the reaction has been, and there are a lot of founders out there saying, hey, I have this successful product. Like it was some uh, CBD entrepreneur, for example, mm -hmm. who was like, look, my, my product is selling right now. I've got millions of dollars in revenue. So there are people out there saying, hey, this guy is a known fraud and he's, he's mm -hmm. growing it out, getting all his money. And I'm really struggling here. And I have a lot of friends who've dealt with this phenomenon and I have friends solving it. So there are a lot of people trying to solve this problem right now. I think they're relatively small relative to the, the behemoths of the world, like these injuries and Horowitzes. And like, I don't know, right? I don't know. You're right to say like, obviously there's more data that's needed here. 2% seems mm -hmm. so low to me yeah. that 
it's hard not to imagine that there's some kind of mindset problem going on yeah, here. Yeah, no, it's completely possible. I would not ruling it out. Yeah, and I think there's, and I know there's a lot to be said of like Ellen Powell and all these people who've written books about the culture of Sil Silicon Valley. I would say I'm generally pretty like, I try to be even-handed when it comes to people making claims about cultures around huge industries, although there are certain industries like finance where it's unambiguously problematic. I would call Silicon Valley definitely one of those. I, I remember I would take trips out to Silicon Valley uh, like 10 years ago, and I have a friend now who's very successful uh, founder of a company, female-led founder of a company, actually I think might even be backed by Andreessen Horowitz. She would be in these situations, she would relay to me constantly the kind of harassment she was dealing with that it just was so like just like so hard to even wrap your head around where she would be in these companies where it would be like tons of female coders, tons of female operations staff, 100% male-led leadership where they're like actively committing sexual harassment and she's, there's nothing she'd do about it. They're like threatening her and all that. And this was a constant story I heard from people in the Valley at that time. Now I haven't spent a lot of time since, but I think that's part of it too. Like the pipeline thing that you're talking about could be related to that, right? Like it could be, all right, maybe one of the reasons, like let's pretend like the data actually did say that the, the pitch has also reflected this. I, I hard to imagine that the pitches would reflect 2%, but let's say that, that, that they do. That could also be a reflection of some of the, the behavior that people and the opportunities people were given 10 years ago in this culture that existed and may still exist today. So all that to be said, though, there is a, I think, a misappropriation of this data because people are then saying that, well, look at Elizabeth Holmes. She's going to be going to jail. And that's a, tr that's a female-led founder who did the same things as Adam Newman. Now, I want to be careful about this because I think these are definitely very different situations. So Adam Newman, to be clear, did some bad things, but largely his victims were his investors, like SoftBank, which I'm shedding no tears for, and uh, the employees of his company who you know, went to the company in large part got lower pay than they probably would in other places in exchange for stock options, which are not worth what they thought they would be. It's still a company traded though publicly, so... You know, it's tough. I don't know exactly how people got washed out or not in that circumstance. And if he had defrauded those investors, like he could have lied to them, he could have done all sorts of things, but fraud is a very specific legal thing. If he had done that, they would charge him for that. Elizabeth Holmes did something very different. She defrauded her investors, but she also had an actual product that was out there that people were using to gauge whether they had illnesses or not. And she was defrauding them, Adam Newman, at the height of his frenzy, he was still operating WeWork locations where I was one of his customers, where there was a building, you walk in, you have a seat, there's shitty coffee, you're paying rent, it's an actual service. At the height of Theranos, it was a totally fraudulent company that was telling people that their blood work was A, when in a lot of cases it was B, and could have had very serious consequences for people's health. Those are very different things. Yeah, absolutely. Screwing with an office space is not screwing with like an illness diagnosis. It, the one-to-one -one and like the moral panic around this, like, I don't know. It's it's not my business what Andreessen puts his money towards. I don't know that Newman, who was just photographed walking around barefoot in Manhattan, would be right. the guy that I would put three hundred fifty million towards. But you know, that's his. He's right. free to do it. I don't. I'm the moral panic. I I don't know. And that's the final point to make here, which is founders are crazy. Steve Jobs walked around barefoot. He, you know, he was, he did all sorts In of Gramercy? weird things. I don't oh. know. Like, I don't know where New he would have walked around. Sidewalks? Oh. Founders are crazy. Adam Newman wouldn't be the first, certainly won't be the last person to do terrible things and succeed in American business life. I think a lot of people are taking, Sarah Lacey made this point on Twitter and we'll link to that, where there are just so many flawed founders who go on to great success in American society that people I think are mad at Newman for what he did and are I think so focused on that that they're not thinking about hey here's a very serious player in the venture capital world and a guy who's really bold and I wouldn't be shocked if they succeeded is yeah, I wouldn't I'm, I'm not rooting for Adam Newman but I wouldn't be shocked if they succeeded yeah. all right so the phrase worker productivity score just sounds a little ominous, but it's a growing trend across all manners of industries. Companies are keeping ever closer track of what their employees are up to, which sounds pretty innocuous on one level, but raises a lot of questions about privacy in the process. 
The New York Times had a huge article out earlier this week, and Jody Cantor is one of my favorite writers. She wrote this book called She Said. Great article. And, you know, I gave the New York Times a hard time earlier this week. This is quite an experience. Obviously, we're going to link to this in the show notes. This is an article detailing just this movement towards these new technologies that are more and more Orwellian um, in uh, American workplaces, you know, that a staggering amount of American workplaces, everything from McDonald's to Fortune 500 companies where people in white collar jobs are being tracked, uh, you know, with more intrusive technologies than ever before. The article itself is fascinating because it, it, it was created in a really smart way where they kind of mimic the experience of being one of these employees as you go through the article and actually you go halfway through the article and be like, it took you 14 minutes to get to this point. What have you been doing? Mm -hmm. And I have to say, it really affected my read of this article because when I got that score, I was actually doing what the article describes some of these employees complaining that they were doing that weren't getting tracked, which was I, I had printouts, I was writing on a piece of paper, I had another computer in front of me and I was typing on that. So it wasn't mm -hmm. all being tracked through this article. And that's what these employees are saying in this article. They start with an anecdote of an employee in a company who says that she was docked time from this like productivity tracking software. But re in reality, what she was doing was printing out stuff, doing math problems on a piece of paper, et cetera. And you hear a lot of complaints like this. Mm -hmm. What did you make of this article? I mean, I think there's a huge gradation of what employers are doing. Like, I know that there are some employers, or even when I was at NYU, professors would track whether you were on the Zoom, like, screen, whether that was the application that you were active on during a lecture. That sort of thing's totally fine to me. That seems pretty fair. If there's a meeting counterpart to that and not, you know, if you want people to be engaged, I think that remote work does open up a lot of possibilities for people to not be as engaged in their work. But I right. think that there are examples here of it being more dystopian. And it's interesting seeing that this has been historically very common in low paying jobs and places where people's output are just more measurable. And now that it's climbing up the the chain with remote work, now we're kind of all morally outraged about right, it. Right. But, yeah. um, and I think the challenge for the people who create this software is, let's pretend that this makes workers better which I'm convinced that at certain levels, it does at a very limited way. And it, and it does so for places like a McDonald's where, yeah, you, where McDonald's is tasks. not interested in how long you're being at McDonald's that much. Yeah. yeah, like for them, they're like, yeah, if I can keep you for a couple of years, awesome. But their business model is almost like, I'm going to suck your soul out for a couple months, maybe a year or two, and then expect that you're going to leave and do another job. I think like the average job for somebody at McDonald's is in the early 20s. So for those people, they don't really care how much you mm -hmm. like their job. They just want to make sure that you're doing the thing they want you to do for the limited amount of time yeah. that you're doing it. You start to go to jobs, whether they're lower paying jobs or higher paying jobs that want people to stay in their jobs for a significant period of time. Then you start to get into some trouble here because nobody wants to be monitored like this. Even if it were accurate, which I have serious questions about, and whether even if it is measuring the things you wanted to, this is just not a great way to live your life. Mm -hmm. And that's the big question I have. But I also think this is the lens you bring, right? Like, how are you at work often informs how you think about this. Mm -hmm. So if you're great and you're like, I don't need somebody looking over my shoulder, you look at this and you're like, all right, like, this is a waste of time. I don't need this. And it's actually not that problematic anyway, because I'm doing all the things they're yeah. asking me to do. If you're a slacker, then there are two ways you can see this article. One is you could be like, well, uh, I'm worried about this because this will expose me. And we've all worked with people like that. Some mm -hmm. of us have also been people like that. It all depends on your view of human nature. I, this is how I think of policing debates. Like a lot mm -hmm. of my friends who grew up in fancy neighborhoods don't view policing the way I do because they have a different view of human nature. Yeah. If you've been in a workplace where people are constantly hiding and not doing the work they've done, if you've ever been in those workplaces, you can kind of sympathize a little bit with these people even yeah. if you don't ultimately support it. And studies are showing that workers that are working from home end up doing like an hour less than their office counterparts. And mm -hmm. so there is, it is a legitimate problem. I don't know that it's the fault of workers, just like the fact that the landscape changed so dramatically and the way that you do things is just like not even, it's not even a one-to-one -one comparison. It's, you can do work in like the middle of the night and a lot of jobs right. now and stuff. I think what, what this comes down to for me in the end is I have no issues with measures of output. Like if you're not doing this, 
the amount of work that's expected of you, then that's a problem. And right. I think that managers should be tracking that and should be able to if there's technologies that allow them to do that. But how you do it, when you do it, how long it takes you to do it, as long as it's getting done, I think that's that's the part where it gets creepy. It feels like there's someone looking over your shoulder. Taking I understand. You, right? Yeah, the screenshot yeah. stuff, like that's completely different to me than like, are you actually in this meeting tab right. when we're on a meeting or are you doing other things? Like that's, those are two different conversations. I think there's, definitely a a scope of how creepy this can get. But I also think that employers, if they're going to continue now that the pandemic's over to extend more remote options, they do have some right to say, okay, if you're going to do this, like have the same amount of output that you did when yeah. you were in office. Yeah, and there are quotes in the article from people saying, look, I, that making that trade-off saying, I'm going to let you work from home, but we're going to yeah, monitor did you that. more. And I have mixed feelings about this. You, you know, I get it, but the, the technology just is too creepy to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's, there's versions that are that. too creepy. It, it reminds me of what Elon was saying about the, you, you know, if you want to work from home you, or you could pretend to work somewhere else or something like that. You know, there was this passage in this article where I was nodding my head, nodding my head until I got to the end. So they're like, meaning nodding my head saying, this is wrong. This is a quote from the article. That'd be shaking. Radiologists see scoreboards showing their inactivity time and how their productivity stacks up against their colleagues. I'm like, wow, that seems creepy. JP Morgan tracking how employees spend their days from making phone calls to composing emails, et cetera. Now, side note, for compliance reasons, a lot of banks have to do some of these things, but how you use that data is tricky. They talk about Barclays. They talk about United Health, which is monitoring your keyboard activity. And then I'm at this point in this paragraph and I'm like, all right, this is, this is all creepy. This is bad. Then they go, in June, the New York uh, Metropolitan Transportation Authority told engineers and other employees they could work remotely one day a week if they agreed to full-time productivity monitoring. And then I'm like, well, let's make them do that because I did this, this reporting on the MTA and how much money they waste and how, I don't want to be mean, but we are taxpayers here in New York. People can go back. We'll link to the article there. Brian Rosenthal of the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winning author, describes just how not productive the MTA is. And then I start saying, well. It's all public utilities, essentially. Yeah. There is a problem being solved here. That's the MTA. There are also workplaces. We've all been in and around workplaces, I would imagine, where there are colleagues. Sometimes there's a whole culture where people do nothing. And- that needs to be solved. Now, good managers should be able to solve that without taking your picture, without yeah. monitoring your keyboard activity. But it activity. is way more difficult to do that when you can't even see someone or if you might just interact with them on a Zoom call like once a week to check in. I get the the, the sort of impetus, but this is where I kind of, I want to caution employers about this, is we are in a buyer's market if the buyer is the employee, right? Mm -hmm. This is, the employees have more leverage than they ever had before. Yeah. And I think that will be true as long as we're as restrictive as we are about immigration. When that's true, the talented people are not going to put up with this. So you've got to give on these things. You mm -hmm. can't create an environment where that's this is what it means to work at your company because smart people, creative people are just going to say no to this. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right. Let's talk about some election results. Normally, and with all due respect, Wyoming and Alaska wouldn't exactly be the highest profile primaries out there, but we did have a couple of big races there on Tuesday, namely Congresswoman Liz Cheney. She lost her primary to her Trump-backed opponent, and that was no surprise, but still, the results are striking. She's now gone from the number three person in the House just a couple years ago to losing her seat in dramatic fashion, and she had some pretty dramatic words when she uh, conceded. This primary election is over, but now the real work begins. The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed, he saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of history. Essentially saying, I'm not going anywhere. A lot of people think she may run for president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she had suggested she had not ruled that out. I'm curious, what do you, let's kind of size that up. It depends on what her goal is, right? If her goal is to foil Trump, that's one thing. If her goal is to actually win, I, I have tougher questions for her. Yeah, I don't think there's any chance right. for multiple reasons. The first being that there's no way that she's going to win a Republican primary. If she, and if she runs as an independent... She's alienated she Trump to. supporters. Yeah. And then she also is 
like super conservative. So I'm not sure who's going to be pulled from the Democratic side. Like she's right. said that she's okay with waterboarding and she's very much like a relic of the Bush era, like war hawk sort right. of days. I, I don't think that she's the right person. But I mean, I... I think the, uh, the result of this election is just based on the fact that she, like everyone, the Republicans are saying she's out of touch. She is out of touch with her base there. And that's true. I give her credit for doing something on principle, but this was inevitably going to happen as a result. Um, this is the state that Trump won by the largest margin of almost 70%. Yep. This was going to happen. But, you know, if she has her eyes on like a larger cultural influential role, like she's a much more prominent household name than she was a couple years ago. Yeah, she doesn't pass the Tim Miller test. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about former Republican strategist Tim Miller, who said, here's the kind of person who could run as a third party candidate. Mm -hmm. And he basically described this UFC barstool Rogan-esque uh, you know, anti-PC middle, mm. as they yeah. describe it. I I don't even know if I'd put it in the middle. It's kind of just an eclectic group of people. Yeah, this is not that. She's, not She's that. like yeah. the quintessential GOP person pre-Trump. Yes. The only thing that she breaks is just not being like on Trump's side right now. On and the like, democracy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it. I, and I give her credit. Like it's like, she's doing this on principle and that's very clear. And this is like a sacrifice that she's made in order to stand true to her principles. But it's just not lining up with her base. In yeah, Wyoming. there's a huge debate on the left about what to make of Liz Cheney. I was on a, a more partisan podcast yesterday talking about this where my counterpart was like very critical of Liz Cheney and being like, look, like we don't need the Liz Cheneys. And I was saying like, if I were thinking, like, if I'm putting myself in the, in the the head of progressives here and just anybody who's, like, not in the Trump coalition, mm -hmm. I would be welcoming anybody who believes in, in protecting our democracy at its core level, whether you disagree on abortion, whether you disagree on taxes, whether you disagree on health care. If that truly is the fight that you're fighting, which is protecting democracy, avoiding authoritarian overreach, I would be thinking more with more tolerance here than some people mm -hmm. are. And I think you don't have to look very far than in the very same state, the same night, the secretary of state nominee who will, you know, it's Wyoming, will essentially be the secretary of state is an election denier. And so this is getting existential. And this is true across the board. You had 10 people, I believe, who GOP members who voted for impeachment for the January 6th stuff. Only two of them are going to be on the ballot in November. So this is this is almost like the Bathist. Well, only six of them are seeking re-election. So, so. But, but the four two out is of not six. accidental. I know, probably. but two out of six is different than the yeah. two out of ten, which I think is a figure that gets thrown. But it's like almost lot. like self-selecting, right? It's like the Bathist mm -hmm. cards from if you remember this, like you might have been very young at this point. But we there was like a deck of cards of all like the major members of the Bathist party under Saddam. And yeah, no, I have basically, no idea. it's like it's basically a most wanted list. Uh -huh. Now, those most wanted people can turn themselves in, which is my metaphorical equivalent of the four here who didn't decide to run, uh -huh. but they're responding to something real. And then you've got the rest of them. But I think you wouldn't consider, like, if the point you're making is, yeah, it's not as simple. No, I just think, I think it's an important nuance that, that this is a vetting mechanism. Yeah, now. no, definitely. Yeah. I think that I just think that's an important nuance, though, right. that it's two out of six and whatever the other four factors are could be different. I'm not sure. I haven't gone through each one. But, right. you know, regardless, I I'm not like a huge Cheney fan in general. Yeah. I have a lot of disagreements with her, particularly on like kind of interventionist policies. Yeah, um, but I, I always celebrate people who are willing to break party lines and actually have nuanced opinions. And I think, you know, it happens in each political party where like Joe Manchin is the the enemy of every Democrat and Liz Cheney's the enemy of every Republican. And that's not a healthy thing for democracy. Like politicians can have nuance. They should have nuance. They should be incentivized. The election is the check on that. It shouldn't right. be the party, the party politics and the party optics within Washington. And I think one interesting wrinkle of this election was she claims, I think, with some evidence that she was very limited in how she could campaign because of threats to her life. I think the very act of of priming her because of her vote is all, I think, intersects with this sense of cancel culture. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about cancel culture on the left. I think this is a reminder that there is a very aggressive form of shutting down voices that people oppose that's mm -hmm. happening on the right right now. And yes, it is people's right to vote at the ballot box to take a candidate out that they disagree with. It's a right, it's people's right to shout somebody down. It's a right for people to, you know, aggressively go after somebody on Twitter, but it is revealing of an intolerance of points of view that are different. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is a little scary. I think that there's 
couple other things that happened this night, I think, but in general, what we're going to try to do is once a week, come back to how the midterm elections are shaping up. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be start going out to swing districts, starting with Lehigh County in Pennsylvania. One interesting data point that came out this past week was that the NRSC, which is the National Republican Senatorial Committee, has significantly decreased its ad buys in some critical states like Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. like Arizona. And there's a lot of interpretation of this data. I would say that I wouldn't make too much out of this data other than to say there are certain states where they're really struggling. And I would say Pennsylvania is one of them. And I'm going to go down and try to get a on the ground read of that. Mm-hmm. And then there are certain states where I think their money would be would actually make a much bigger difference. Wisconsin, to me, would be an example of that. And I think as we watch over the next few weeks where they reallocate money, how the different entities, super PACs, NRSC, individual candidates allocate money, we're going to start to see who they think the good bets are and mm-hmm. who aren't. And I'm really curious to see how some of these candidates like Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker mm-hmm. make it out of these next few weeks in terms of resource allocation, because I yeah. have my theories. Sarah Palin. Sarah She's Palin. back. <laughs> yeah, Sarah Palin. I mean, wow. The cult of celebrity is alive <laughs> in America right now. So let's talk about students. There are a couple different sets of data that caught our eye here this week, and we'd like to talk about both of them together because of how they re- relate to one another. And so there's this study from Education Next that looks at uh, the progress students have made over the last 50 years. So this is a staggering amount of data that they looked through. And then there was a more narrow study from Education Week that looked at the level of work teachers were assigning in the wake of the pandemic learning loss. And when you put this all together, it tells a really fascinating story about where we are as a country. So I'll just start by saying this looked at, and I'll start with this Education Next study. They looked at 7 million student test scores on 160 intertemporally linked math and reading tests and measured for the median to avoid outliers and essentially came out and said between the years 1954 and 2017, student achievement actually increased in this country, which to me is surprising for a lot of reasons. I would say it's not as surprising to me in general. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of statistics that have just shown like a, a global increase in IQ over the past few generations. And I think also just diminishing poverty rates. Right. I mean, you compare the kids, the year that the oldest kids in the study were born, it the poverty rate was twice as much as it was when the youngest ones were. Right. And so I think what we're seeing is a lot of gaps in our society closing, which is bringing the average up entirely. Um, and that's that's seen in the fact that um, students of color are achieving and, and closed gaps much more than their white counterparts. And also those from low socioeconomic backgrounds could be in part because the standard of living for people in low socioeconomic backgrounds has increased Like, I think this is a reflection of the fact that our society has progressed over those 50 years and has seen that the results of that. But one thing that I did find interesting is that the increases are in elementary school, like the most dramatic, like the elementary school improvement is huge. Then it goes down in middle school and it goes down even more in high school comparing the 50 years ago level to now. And I would be curious if technology is maybe a part of that because those like intrusive technologies and the internet phones all that stuff gets more and more a problem as you get older so that Mm -hmm. was one thing i found kind of interesting yeah i have a different theory about that which is our our country's inability to do middle school well i think Mm -hmm. that there's so much damage done to student well-being in our middle schools i almost if i were to do like the equivalent of you know the manhattan project for schools i would do it in solving our middle school issues because Mm -hmm. and everybody has this experience i think for the most part and you think about what was some of the worst years of your life to me it was definitely middle school like middle school was tough and i see this with my students like i don't know what to do for students in middle school yeah but it gets even worse in high school too. but i think that that's the gateway right and so there's just like a lot of things that happen in your schools. I see this with the kids in, in the schools that I served where also yeah. like economics matter more. So in elementary school, people aren't sizing each other up based on what they're wearing as much. You start to see in middle school, like, oh, you got Jordans. Like th- these types of things happen. People are meaner. Hormones take over. So I would- no, I would You'll wanna... never be able to fix the hormone problem. I think a lot of it stems from that. Yeah, but how we, we group kids together, how we treat yeah. them, how, yeah. how we invest resources, I think all matter. But- On the one hand, I wanted to do this study because 
there's this pink Steven Pinker theory that we just don't celebrate wins enough. Mm -hmm. He's written whole books about how much the world has gotten better. Yeah, absolutely. So I do want to celebrate the fact that some of this data unambiguously shows that students are doing better. And they actually make this distinction between crystallized knowledge and fluid knowledge. I think it's a little clunky, but essentially what they're saying is reading, because reading scores didn't increase as much as math. They did increase. Yeah, math was considerably more. Yeah, I think he, reading they, was by one year's worth of advancement per and decade, math yeah. was by four. Yeah, per decade. So it's a lot if we start to put this whole thing together. But reading is, they're saying, is more of a knowledge-based activity, which I generally agree with. And they say math is more fluid. So you're making associations. Like even though there is some knowledge-based work in math, you have to know what, for instance, the division sign I would means. think it'd be exactly the opposite. There can be, but not in the way that it's being taught anymore. Like it used to be that you teach somebody you look in the back of a composition notebook and there's a times table and you met, you remember it that we don't teach math like that anymore. Thank God. Like the That's common core for it. all of its evils got rid of that way of teaching. And I was in the middle of all this as they changed it. And I saw the resistance people had to it, but it makes total sense that we changed that. Mm -hmm. And, but I'll put all that aside because there's a huge debate about what all this means, fluid versus crystallized, et cetera, to put cold water on this a little bit. There are three problems with the way they interpret this data. And in some ways, they're transparent about it. One is, this is an international phenomenon. So they're almost like, yeah, USA, like we're doing some things right, et cetera. But this is kind of trends we see all over the world. And in part- The global property trends are also similar. Yeah. So it's so I think a lot of this is not because of anything uniquely American, but because mm -hmm. we're just better. And Pinker writes about this. Like it, There's just so much less- extreme poverty like the kind mm -hmm. of poverty my dad grew up in india is so much more scarce than it yeah. is now like where there's access to running water electricity life-saving medicines etc and that has effects on how people perform cognitively of obviously course. so this is nutrition good. as well yeah and these are all great things like mm -hmm. and it also their triumphs of human ingenuity all awesome right mm -hmm. everything from agriculture with borlaug to safe sanitation practices like this was a great human effort to solve all these things international cooperation etc but when you look at the data and you compare how American students are doing relative to other students internationally in the same period of time, which is really the question, right? Like, obviously, we want people to be smart. We don't want to live in idiocracy. But we want our people to be doing better than other countries yeah. because we're in a global competition. Our students are not doing great. There's this program called PISA, which is the Program for International Student Assessment, which is the big international test that we take. And it's also, for reasons I won't go into, has really it, it kind of mimics the common core in the sense of the level of depth of the mm -hmm. math problems that they're being asking they're asking students to do so they're very world world real world applicable mm -hmm. so their kind of questions are not just tell me what two times two is but more like there's an engineer and he's got this issue yada yada so it actually mimics the way people interact in the real world our students have seen math and reading scores uh reverse over this period of time and we're not doing well relative to our international counterparts on these tests. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that the gains in student achievement, like you talk about, are erased towards the end. So who cares how good a student is doing in elementary school if at the end of the process, their gains are not, like the white students are actually starting to outgain the black students. Now, obviously we want all students to do well, but but if you're celebrating the narrowing of achievement gaps of subgroups, and then those those the, the, the trends are completely the opposite yeah. once you're leaving high school, that's what matters. It's how are we, like, what kind of adults are we yielding into the world? So how are we setting people up for success? The third problem with this data is COVID. Yeah. They, the authors even acknowledge, like, now, all right, all this great stuff, they acknowledge the data is pretty staggering about how much the most vulnerable students have suffered because of COVID. And you put that all together and I say, all right, there's some good stuff in here, but I'm still pretty much as alarmed about the state of our education system before I read this study as I was mm -hmm. before. Yeah, I've probably been reading too much Pinker because it didn't surprise me at first. But yeah, it, it makes sense that globally we're all kind of increasing. And it's also certainly a positive that gaps in America are decreasing. But I agree that in the scheme of things, we're not achieving to the level that we should be, which is something that, as you said, is getting worse with COVID. And one study looked at reading questions given to students and whether or not they sized up to their grade level. Um, they looked at 75,000 public and private schools. And before the pandemic, already a quarter of questions being asked were below grade level. And that jumped in the pandemic um, considerably and especially along, among low socioeconomic like zip codes. 
And the result is that only students only struggled slightly more on those harder questions, which is the the interesting part because they they do have the despite the fact that I think teachers are responding and saying, you know, kids have been away and we need to help them and kind of pull things back and make sure that they're on track. Students are actually able to kind of stretch themselves and and hopefully achieve. And a lot of the results are also showing that students who were achieving at these harder questions aren't really able to like go to the next level because they're being held back. Yeah, this is a fundamental misunderstanding I think people have about education is they'll still look at this and say, well, if students are behind, give them easier work work well as an entry yeah. point right but yeah. if at, after a couple months those students aren't doing more challenging work you're doing it wrong yeah definitely. and this is an interesting combination of data because the data we just talked about is outputs mm-hmm. this is talking about inputs which are going to tell us what the outputs are going to be five ten years from now this is very concerning because yeah. this is telling us that those students all that reading growth that we talked about the one year of growth or whatever it is for every 10 years is, is going to be reversed based on the data that we're looking at, especially for the most vulnerable students. Yeah. And this gets to a couple of ideological fault lines in American society. One is the role of standardized tests. We wouldn't even have this discussion if a lot of progressives had their way. And and some conservatives actually who kind of have, it's ever since the Common Core debates have united, the extreme left and the extreme right have united in this anti-testing fervor for different reasons, very different reasons, <laughs> and which I, we've talked about, I won't go into, but they're attacking testing And if they had their way, we wouldn't even know how these subgroups are performing. We wouldn't know how our kids are doing. And that's a bad world. So this is why we have to defend the use of standardized testing because 20 years from now, if they have their way, we won't even know. It'll be Mm -hmm. a total black box and people will be making claims based on anecdotes to be like, oh, Sally's reading above grade level. So, you know, everybody's doing fine, right? That's what the debates will look like then. So we need to protect these tests. I think number two is we need to have a better theory of differentiation and just what it what it means to challenge students. I think there's this babying of students. There's this sense that, all right, like the world has been so tough on you. So let's just take it easy on you to build your confidence. That's not how you help students. You say, all right, you need to be at this level. Like yeah. I know you can, we're going to get you yeah. there and we're going to set a goal that you're going to be reading above grade level by the end of the year. And Mr. Miyagi style, we're going to start with painting that fence, but at the end you're going to be, you know, beating Johnny in the big all Valley tournament, right? Like we have no to no idea what like you're this. talking about, but yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we created, co- yeah. we created Cobra Kai. Yeah, so no, people I, like I, you I, and I get can it. talk about I this. So it. you have to watch that. <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? Like uh-huh. they start at this point and it becomes the end point, which is yeah. students can't do it because X, Y, and Z. And that mentality is a cancer on our education system. And we need to root it out because all the technical stuff about how we teach doesn't matter. If you don't come in believing that the student is going to be at a great level at the end of the mm-hmm. year, they're not going to believe it if you don't believe it. And I think it's also really disheartening to see that students who are achieving are kind of being pulled back by this trend in general. And I would imagine there's a difference between like math and reading. Like you might be able to push a kid a little further on reading just and like reach that level well, yeah. versus math has like very fundamentals that like you need to learn and make sure that you're hitting all the benchmarks. A, but a well-designed school can do either well, but it's actually yeah. harder to do in this environment. It's actually harder to push differentiation and reading the math for, for a very practical reason, which is if you're running a math class and let's pretend your school has computers, which a, more of them have computers than ever before and you have internet. I've got a group of 20 kids and let's say two of them are so accelerated. In this environment, you could put those two kids in the back of the classroom and Khan Academy and they could be doing calculus by the end of the year. Who knows, right? That is a huge advance mm-hmm. and something that was even true back a couple of years ago when I was running schools. It's not the best version of education, but it certainly is better than a lot of differentiation yeah. that we're seeing. Obviously, the same could be true in reverse. If you're teaching calculus and a kid doesn't know how to add, you can have the kid doing addition on the computer as well. There are all sorts of things that need to be in play to make that happen. In math, that's easier than reading, where a lot of reading instruction, to make kids love reading, you have to read books, mm-hmm. right? You could read articles, you could read printouts, but we've all had the experience where it just sucks, right? So you need to read books. Now, in order to read a book with a group of 25 students, it's really hard to pick that book. But that's what like, a, a good teacher is going to do. Like I had a, a teacher, Brooke Allen, who took Charlotte's Web and on her own decreased the lexile level of it, literally went in and wrote out words of lower vocabulary so that she could have a student in her classroom read at the same level as everybody else. That's how hard that is. So I sympathize with people. Actually, and this is a good transition because my my radical idea, I don't actually think this one is that radical. It has to do with education. So I was reading in this book about 3M, the company, which is Mm -hmm. a company that has a huge basket of products that it sells in society. And they have this rule that 25% of its revenue 
has to come from products that didn't exist five years ago. And I found that interesting because it's a constant mm -hmm. renewal process that they have. So I was thinking to myself, what can we learn from this? Because this seems like a really successful mindset and a successful yeah. way to organize your company. And so my, my rule, I would love to apply and pilot in a few school districts is to say 25% of your classes you teach slash curriculum that you teach has to be on subjects that didn't exist five years ago. So this would push schools to do things like advanced statistical models that didn't exist or, you know, the role of technology in society, managing your attention in a, you know, changing digital space, you know, advances in computer programming, artificial intelligence. You know, these are the types of things that I think schools should be teaching. It's also relevant, kids will get more excited about it. It could also be just reading material that is uh, has been created in the past five years because so many of these schools, the teacher teaches what they learn. So it's like, that's why we have kids reading Beowulf and shit and everybody's falling asleep. So I think 25% stuff that didn't exist five years ago, now we could, we could change the five to 10 or something like that. But what do you think of this? I think at higher grade levels, I'm okay with that. I think yeah, so probably, maybe start in high school. Yeah, that seems reasonable to me. I've always thought that like you should have more options in high school because at some point you know what you're not going to do professionally right. and you end up spinning your wheels on something that you know you will never use in life. Lower grade levels, I think that some good old time-tested classics are actually kind of a good thing. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have an issue with that, especially even just 25% of things that are just relevant to life. Like even if it's just like nutritional science right. in high school, like that to me, even though that's not, I mean, there are innovations within the past five years on that, but like stuff that's actually relevant to how life is going to look when you leave school, I'm, I'm all for it. I totally agree. There should be a nutrition class yeah, every grade 100%. level, especially in high school. There 100%. should be a You eat three finance. times a day. You'd never do trigonometry. Like yeah. it's so illogical. Personal finance. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, way more physical fitness and play. You start to accumulate these things and then you compare it to why is everybody required to take algebra? Yeah. You know, like, I mean, when, when was the last time you used algebra? I, I haven't used it I mean, it in algebra, years. I feel like it's probably good to take. But, but like, beyond that, I feel like at years, a certain point, you're you old know? enough to say like, I did two years of science in high school and now my next two years, like I'd like to drop that and do right. something else. Like it's, I'm definitely not going to go into chemistry. You know, right. like there's a point where you can have some, some say over your education. And I think that's a healthy thing and an empowering thing for kids rather than just like cramming their minds full of things that they know will never have any like relevance in their day-to-day -day life. Well, that means I'm two for two over the past two weeks for my radical well, ideas. Well, they've gotten so less weird. Yeah. So... <laughs> Well, Let's see next good week. Job bring something me, weird. Two for two on convincing Ricky. Well, <laughs> thank you for listening to this show. Uh, make sure to give us that five star rating if you like what we're doing and, and just say what you like about the show. Share this with your friends. Hit that like button. It's been a pleasure, and we'll be right back here next week. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey, Wes Parnell, and Ariane Misra. Studio support by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Monica Spitia and Joe Engelbrecht. And video editing by Ava Maldonado. Oh, 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 o